0: I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird.
1: I'm Sheila Liming, Edith Wharton scholar and committed socializer, at least according to the New York Times.
0: Hey, nice one, Sheila. (laughs)
2: that That New York Times article was great. We'll link to that in the show notes. That was a great article.
0: We absolutely will great photos too that green car that you're in the classic car. Do you own every kind of classic car? Sheila?
1: No, just Doubles, that one
0: triples okay
1: <laughs> just that one and and actually i'm I'm like outside working on it today. I can see it from my window where I was just working on it, so oh awesome.
0: That's great. Welcome to episode 72, Sheila of Concavity Show. You are the author of the recent book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, which we're here to mostly talk about today. Uh, You also have a couple other books. You have What a Library Means to a Woman, and the book Office. And you are a professor of English at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. You have published in lots of other places, too, like McSweeney's and The Atlantic and Lapham's Quarterly, the LA Review of Books, The Point. Stuff like that. You had a wonderful McSweeney's um, publication called Oh, the Shit You'll Do After your Tenured, which is uh, the Dr. Seuss riff. And I love that. I've seen that around before. So that was wonderful. And I've so enjoyed your Twitter presence over the years. Um, your tweet about Jonathan Franzen, the ridiculous fact that I'll soon be dead. Uh, I pinned that tweet on our Concavity show Twitter like five years ago, and it's still the pinned tweet. So... I said I was pinning it for all eternity and it's still there. So thanks for that.
2: <laughs> but really, the book is so good and uh, so passionate. And like, I really connected to it myself because I feel like I am one of those people who is also a committed socializer. So I do want to talk more about that. And really, my first question for you is maybe you could just start by defining what is hanging
1: out? Uh, In the book, I define hanging out as daring to do not much and daring to do it in the company of other people. Um, And that's the definition that I like to stick with. Um, It's basically a kind of manifesto around the idea of uh, spending unstructured or lightly structured free time, but spending it in like social circumstances. Um, And you know, trying to organize your life in a way so that those social social circumstances actually come to you. And so you have opportunities to take advantage of them when they do come to you.
2: And so the, the question that some people might have, especially if they don't know you, uh, and that would be probably a lot of us, it'd be, how did you come to write this book? Because... As Edith Wharton Scholar, you've written on a bunch of topics. To me, you also kind of strike yourself as like generally interested in a lot of different things that comes across in the book. And you have a lot of interest, which I can relate to. I kind of like being a generalist rather than a specialist in a lot of ways. Um, but tell us just a little bit about like your desire to write this book and your path to making it reality.
1: Sure. Um, I'm interested in work, obviously. My previous book before this was about was Office, which was about the sort of declining nature of white-collar work, um, especially in the United States and the disappearing spaces that have fostered that work in the past. And the flip side of work is, of course, leisure. And I was interested in thinking about leisure as a political question. Um, who has access to it? Who does not? Why they don't have access to it? And what we would have to do in order to give ourselves more access to it or in order to like seize that access in a sense. So that's where the the discussion of hanging out began um, in thinking about leisure as a, a political issue and a political question. And then also thinking about the forms of leisure that we practice. And that kind of coalesced around the term hanging out because I love that term. It sounds so dopey. It's like this like hangover from 1960s, 70 lingo, you know, But but I don't think we've come up with a better term for it. In the past 50 years like hanging out is still kind of the predominant way that we talk about spending unstructured social times
2: that idea too of of hanging out uh and it is a political like say you have the radical power like it's a radical idea to seize this kind of time um Mm -hmm. well and let's go back to that idea of leisure because you know my question for you is like about a lot of work being automated and you know ai is in a lot of conversations The idea being, you know, that humans have always had this idea that we could work more efficiently and therefore we'd have more leisure time. And that seems to have never worked out. Like, why do you think that is, is that we have even more automation, but less leisure time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, we have been promised that machines and technology were going to make our life um, more leisurely since, like, really the 1800s. Um, this is this is a line of rhetoric that goes way back historically. Um, and it has mostly been proven to be false for the most part, right? Like machines don't necessarily grant us leisure. They grant us different opportunities for work. So that while the machine is doing one kind of work for us, we just have to go and do another form of work, right? So it's it's not like, you know, we're all sitting around on the couch now because we have AI to write our emails for us. Yeah, um, totally. That's not exactly how it works out. Um, so yeah, I am interested in the way that um, machines have been both used to promise us uh, more leisure and also been used to like extend the conditions of working into um, other facets of our day and other aspects of our life.
2: And it's related to wealth, too. I think that people who imagine themselves as really wealthy imagine that they would have a lot more leisure time and mm-hmm. you know, money doesn't buy happiness. And as you're just saying that, I'm thinking of a book uh, called Supercon with J.G. Ballard, where Mm -hmm. he kind of imagines like what pure leisure life would look like. And you probably know this better than me, but like in his vision, there's like a lot of sports, a lot of uh, like sexual liberation and like a lot of just frivolity. Um, And therefore, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like even bad to say that this should be a political aim because it seems so, you know, frivolous that like, you know, politically, Mm -hmm. we need to make more time to fund sports or like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, or, or, or like the theater or something. It's like, it's just not up for debate whenever people are debating, you know, healthcare and climate change and like all of these other issues. Like how do you politically, how do you make sense of that, you know, fight for, more leisure time, I guess.
1: Yeah, it, it does feel frivolous in a way when you think about like, well, what are we arguing for? Like more time to chase little white balls around manicured, you know, green lawns or something <laughs> like that. Um, but, you know, it's it's political when you think about who has access to it and who doesn't. And of course, yeah. you know, for those who do not have access to that, what they're forced to do with their time. Um, and, I also, you know, I think of leisure time, especially socially uh, engaged leisure time as the sort of bedrock of our democracy, Um, you know, that we have to find ways to hang out with each other, to spend time with each other and to cultivate care for each other in those scenarios Mm -hmm. in order to care about what we do in a functioning democracy, whether it's, you know, our voting or the things that we fund or whether it's just, you know, the ability to provide social services for each other that other people can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, if you're really busy and you're really distracted all the time, it's really hard to muster that extra energy to care about all that other stuff too.
0: Yeah, totally. And then you lose things like what you talk about in the intro connection, intimacy and meaning. And our world feels increasingly hostile to those three things you say. And in this kind of neoliberal hell we're in, and uh, it, that that line kind of reminded me of something one of our previous guests, Christian Tobordo said, which was that like this system we're in wants to like atomize us and annihilate us, <laughs> which is a line that I have been thinking about for years, Matt. When he first said that when we had him on a few years ago, but that really like triggered something for me reading that in your book as well. Like,
2: yeah, and yeah. I think I think there's a, this tension that you bring up that is like modern life is super isolating why because we have now all these more tools than ever to connect people and yet we're increasingly (laughs) feels like we're increasingly like the future is we're on this other precipice of this side where there's going to be more connection quote in quotes online versus in person so like how do you make sense of that like modern life providing connecting tools, but actually feeling more isolated.
1: Yeah, yeah well, um, I think that with more tools available to make those connections happen, um, one also one thing that also becomes possible is distance and space, right? Um, suddenly it becomes possible to exist at a further remove from each other when we can rely on the tools to sort of suture those connections that grow bigger and bigger. Um, so, you know, I, I, in the book, I talk about the example of like, you know, the American suburbs as the sort of like, you know, great race to create space and create distance between us and, um, you know, how that scene is desirable, um, in the United States, that privacy is privilege, space is privilege, Mm -hmm. um, having a kind of buffer between yourself and, you know, the prying eyes of the public or strangers or whatever is privilege, but it also means that you are becoming more dependent on those tools to then create the connections that you would want, right? The further away you get um, in terms of proximity, it means the more that you have to rely on those technologies to create the connections that you would still want to have. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, that does end up being pretty atomizing in the end. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You know, it's interesting you bring up suburbs because I feel like I moved to a suburb from living in Manhattan. And in both instances, I feel like I was able to get pretty involved in my community, but maybe more so in the suburbs because I had children Um, Mm -hmm. and I did not when I lived in Manhattan. But I wanted to ask you, too, about the idea of like bowling alone and social capital and joining organizations, because I've always been someone who I'm a little bit older than some millennials, but not the oldest of like Gen X. But like I came of a time whenever, you know, I joined a fraternal organization in 1992, Masonic Youth Organization. And so this is before the era really of personal computing.
0: Did you mm. say Sonic Youth? Sorry,
2: uh, Masonic. <laughs> Masonry. Well, let's go. You're with in Sonic. Sonic Youth, you're in Sonic, Sonic Youth, Matt. Youth. Holy shit, man! I joined awesome. that in 1992, so before it was cool. Um, <laughs> uh, cool no, I, I got a taste. Because well? damn. I know nothing about music. Okay, I got I got a taste of what you know. These people who were running it joined in the 60s and 70s and the 50s where there were regular meetings there were banquets there were potlucks there were things that it was expected that you would be part of in some way and all of those organizations you know memberships have declined radically mm-hmm. over the years and you know i don't know what the real i think it's a complex answer but like what is your take on why that is and how it relates to you know what you were just saying about the isolating nature of our living conditions
1: um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point and a complicated question that, you know, probably requires a complicated answer. So I'll see if I can do it justice. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I'm going to begin by thinking about that the ways in which I think um, hanging out in the presence of other people, especially strangers um, who we may not necessarily like be given to hang out with, um, has started to feel like a major inconvenience. Um, And something that has become more and more of an inconvenience, perhaps, for us over the last couple of decades. But it's also something that is contrasted with the kind of control that we feel when we're hanging out, per se, on the Internet. Um, Where when we run into something we don't like or someone we don't like, we have a lot of options. We can close the browser tab. We can ignore that person, we can block them,
0: Block. we them. can
1: navigate <laughs> yeah. away, right? You know, we can, we can do something so we make sure we never have to hear their voice or that conversation or that viewpoint again. And when we're hanging out in public, we can't do any of those things, right? At least not without suffering some pretty huge social consequences or a bunch of people <laughs> calling us, you know, a dick for doing it. So like, I think that feeling of control that manifests in digital spaces where you have a sense of curatorial power, That creates, on the flip side, a kind of impatience for in-person interactions, where you feel like you're at a loss for curatorial power, and it makes you uncomfortable. Um, And then the answer slowly becomes like, well, fine. I don't want to hang out in those spaces then.
0: Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point of how easy it is to close a tab, walk away from something, whereas in person, you might have to still see those people around every day (laughs) or every week. And, right. you know, there were, there are a lot of instances of, you know, in-person feuds and like rivalries and people are like, I don't like that. And there was a lot of, maybe the drama is just in a different form, but I think this relates also to your idea about, you know, taking risks to be in person. Can you explain mm-hmm. what you mean by risk taking in this kind of hanging out context?
1: Yeah, I, I talk about risks in a couple of different ways in the book, um, but especially in the conclusion, which I call how to hang yeah. out. It's It sounds very self helpy but I think it's less self helpy than it sounds, or at least I hope so. Yeah. Um, but I, I talk about risk-taking as a kind of essential ingredient to hanging out because it also, I think, is the thing that sometimes prevents people um, from doing that or even from thinking that they would want to do that. This feeling of like, Okay, well, what happens if I get rejected or what happens if this doesn't go according to plan or if I don't enjoy myself? And, you know, my answer to that is kind of like, so what, you know, like (laughs) another opportunity will come around. The risk itself is pretty minimal. Um, But getting good with that sense of discomfort that can sometimes arise in those social situations is what the risk taking is all about. Um, Because ultimately the risks are sort of minimal in most cases.
0: Unless you're at an academic conference, which it's like now it's part of your (laughs) professional career life but it's also that weird social pressure right that's such a great chapter um hanging out on the job um and yeah like <laughs> I remember going to my first academic conference as a as doing my master's it was at the Sarbonne in Paris and I was like I have I haven't even started writing my thing yet I have nothing to contribute to this conversation but I'm just going to take this risk and go to this and like socially go to this place you know And then on the first day I met Mike Miley and we became friends and Dave Herring and like Uh -uh. people, you know, people that we, we, you know, as well, they're both in the acknowledgements. That was a fun moment to see them there. Mike says hi, by the way. Um, Hey Mike. (laughs) But, but yeah, this like, it's a huge risk to do that, right? You don't know anybody, Mm -hmm. you're just there by yourself.
1: Totally. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you were more outgoing about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm glad to hear that that you were like taking risks because when I think back to when I was a graduate student and I attended some of my first conferences like I spent a lot of time like holing up in my hotel room and avoiding things right because I didn't know what I was supposed to do and I felt like I had no power or leverage to enter into those conversations it's like nobody wanted to know me so
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what have and, you done? Like you what about- to work? What of yours would I know? Like, right, right. Um, How are you useful like, to me? <laughs> I don't have any. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Yeah. All those conversations, like, you know, when you're talking to somebody at an academic conference, especially, and their eyes keep looking to the rest of the room yes. around you as you're talking to them, <laughs> like looking for the better person to come along. right?
2: <laughs> and you, you talk about like the fear of rejection being mainly as uh, maybe even at its core, like in personal discomfort and like really feeling this discomfort and like sort of having to feel it. Like it's a normal human feeling that everyone wants to avoid discomfort. And maybe, you know, this gets back to that larger point you were talking about of like we've built up all these comfort zones Mm -hmm. for ourselves and that it is really hard to get out of those comfort zones because they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. And why would you want to get out of your comfort zone?
1: Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> like it's if you've been it, wearing right? sweatpants exclusively for two years, then yeah, jeans kind of suck, right?
0: <laughs> Wait, you're wearing yeah, pants, which we all pretty much <laughs> do over anyway,
1: though? I know. Like pants? Yeah. Um,
2: but you know this. This is another question that I have for you about um, the idea of introvert and extrovert, um, because I feel like in some ways on both ends, it's kind of a cop-out and like, I, I don't want my kids to grow up to feel like they can get out of any kind of obligation, just being like, well, I'm an introvert. And it's like, Cause I'm an introvert. well, yeah. you still exist in society. You still need yeah. to make friends and have for everyone wants their children to have friends. You want your parents to have healthy relationships. They can't just say like, well, I'm an introvert. And it's like, th- I feel like this wasn't, this is a relatively new invention of like introversion it's and extroversion. Yeah. not to say that's not legit. It's totally legit. I think there are some people who are naturally more charismatic and outgoing and things, but aren't we all part of society that has to interact in some ways? Like what, mm-hmm. how, how do you think of this? Like idea of people being, you know, introverted and therefore they don't have to go to parties.
1: Um, I agree with you that I I think it is a bit of a cop-out, you know, like, like like, I mean, I'm a dialectical thinker, at least I aspire to be a dialectical thinker. And for that reason, you know, <laughs> I've always been trained to believe that any kind of a binary is a suspicious position to be in. And also that the whole point is that you're supposed to be thinking about where binaries collude in that point of synthesis. And yeah, with regards to introversion and extroversion, I don't believe the binary is as firm as people like to talk about it these days, um, nor is it like... Everlasting, like it's something that's hardwired into your personality that can never be overcome, right, because that's just your nature or something like that, Uh although I understand some people do tend towards one side or the other. Um, And I actually think that uh, in the book, probably what I'm sort of working through in one way or another are what I could probably call my own introverted tendencies despite the fact that I'm a kind of extroverted person. I'm a committed socializer, as the New York Times will tell you. I like hanging out, but <laughs> I've had plenty of bad or you know less rewarding experiences hanging out too. And I, I talk about those a lot in the book in order to just to sure kind do, of yeah. put things in yeah. balance and think about how it doesn't always end up being good. It doesn't always have to be good. That's not the whole point. Um, the point is like to build up that social musculature so that you're a little bit more able mm-hmm to deal with both sides of the spectrum, whether, you know, that means um, being stuck by yourself for periods of time, you know, to kind of paraphrase the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that I use in the book, or whether it means, you know, training yourself for a more kind of um, involved social life.
2: Right. And I think understanding whenever, you know, you're more likely to have a good time than not. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you say, training that muscle memory so that, If you're in a situation where you say, you know what, these aren't my people, I think I'm going to bail on this, or (laughs) I'm going to take a risk, and you know what, it actually sucked, and it didn't work out, but (laughs) the worst case is like, maybe I just didn't meet anyone, I couldn't fit in, and I left, you know, therefore, the end of the day. It's not the end of the world, but it doesn't mean like you shouldn't take those risks again. I mean, that's honestly how I think people in this day and age have to go through that cycle to meet, you know, new people or meet new circumstances um so I, we're basically just agreeing with each other over and over here but like you talk a lot about time in the book like the idea of you know you have that's the main ingredient of hanging out is time mm-hmm. so like what what defines like having a good time for you these days like honestly like you talk a little <laughs> bit in the book but for people who haven't read it
1: uh what defines a good time for me these days i don't know how do how do I talk about this without sounding just insanely boring? <laughs> <I don't know.
2: laughs> Nothing about you is boring. Okay. So that's I mean, impossible.
1: I feel like I feel like the stakes, totally. you know, for how I spend my time have, have definitely been lowered <laughs> over the past <laughs> few years, like, you know, due to various age circumstances and the pandemic and everything else. Um
0: yeah, totally. But you know,
1: yesterday yesterday I was uh, hanging out with the members of my my bagpipe bands. So I play in this bagpipe band that's based out of Montpelier, Vermont. And uh, one Saturday a month, we get together for basically the whole Saturday, right? We we get together at nine in the morning and we play until 5 p.m. And and then afterwards, sometimes there's even like a party at somebody's house where we'll go to their house and play more music. And yeah, yeah, it's practice. We're like working on our music together and like some of it's instruction. We're teaching other people who don't know how to play as well, you know, and things like that. But a lot of that is like downtime, right? A lot of it is hanging out and talking and drinking coffee or like strategizing about stuff we're going to do in the future. And I love that. And one of the reasons it works so well for me is just because we do devote a huge chunk of the day to making that work. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's set aside in our calendars. We know that one Saturday every month, you know, we're all going to be there or as many of us as can show up. And, and it makes it so you don't feel like you're squeezing it in between other things you have to do. You know, it's not between some responsibility that you have and some other place you got to be later in the day. So it makes it so that it works a little bit better in that like leisurely um way that it's allowed to unfold.
0: Yeah, let yeah,
2: the jam like unfold.
0: That you talk about yeah, exactly. the whole chapter. On exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Out. Yeah, totally. That's yeah. a great chapter. I love that. Um, <laughs> can I ask what is the venue for an 8-hour bagpipe session? And like who <laughs> um, are the well, neighbors actually... who are listening to that and what is their level That's, of patience and That
1: is a real concern <laughs> it's a, because those neighbors it's a would not instrument. want Yeah. <laughs> it is is it the
0: loudest (laughs) instrument on the planet like without amplification
1: (laughs) um yeah it it is yeah yeah. the the loudest non-amplified instrument is probably if not the highland bagpipes then at least some form of the bagpipes so yeah Yeah. um and we actually for these you know hangout sessions we we rent um out a church that we use um like one of the members of the band is in the congregation but we have this very sweet deal from this uh, church that, you know, rents to us, I think, for $50 for the whole day. So oh, nice. it's pretty That's cheap and and yeah. it's out in the country. So we're not we're not a, annoying okay. too many people.
0: <laughs> nice. That's amazing. Yeah.
2: And, and that idea yeah. of having a big chunk of time, you know, I think that applies to um, things like conferences, which is often like three days. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, there's a lot of like a lot of people travel for like a three day conference when they have like a 30 minute presentation or a 10 minute presentation on a 30 minute panel. And it's like, what are you doing out there for three days? Uh, And you talk about this in the book. It's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hanging out, right? Like, and that's often the main uh, reason that people go to these things. And like, I care very much about it because, you know, I feel like that's truly where we get to hang out with our tribe. Like we found our people here they are and let's actually get to hang out and you know the other yeah, thing is call this that people... the
0: shadow agenda of hanging out at conferences <laughs> the shadow agenda which now I'll say is my only agenda for going to conferences i just want to say it that I've it made pretty much is my
1: my <laughs> only agenda i know i've i've gone from yeah. thinking of it as the shadow agenda to now just thinking of it my like raising detra for being there <laughs> yeah
2: 100% <laughs> but you know we're we're a couple of of dudes who are privileged and don't rely on this for job Purposes at all, like I don't have a CV that I'm updating with what conference papers I've done. Um, but talk to us a little bit, like as a woman, especially who's starting out in her field, some of the dangers that happen at conferences, especially yeah. pre-pandemic days where there was no virtual panels. And there was, you know, this risk that you're walking into a situation where you don't really know the rules, and you're younger, like I say, more junior academic. Tell us some about what it's like. To be a woman in that situation,
1: sure. Um, I'm glad you brought this up, Matt, because this is actually uh, something that nobody has asked me about in all the interviews I've mm-hmm. done up until mm-hmm. here. And I thought I thought it was like obvious. I'm like, okay, I'm giving you this kind of you know controversial take on a thing that happened to me. Presuming yeah. people were going to want to talk about it, nobody has, and I kind of wonder if that's actually because it's so common the story mm-hmm. I'm telling, um, and if that's why some people are just kind of like, well, yeah, that happens to a lot of people, so that makes sense. Um, but I tell a story about, about hanging out at a conference when I was a, a junior scholar, um, when I was younger, and um, you know, basically falling in with a crowd of like, powerful people, one powerful person in particular who had invited me to be there, um, but not understanding the dynamics of the power that were totally at play at that point in time, um, because I was younger in my career and didn't quite know the terrain as well. Um, I was at this conference I'd never been to before. Um, Where I might not even have been had I not been expressly invited to go. And then um, I ended up having a sort of uh, altercation in an interaction with a particular uh, male scholar in my field um, who had some expectations about inviting me to that conference that I didn't quite understand from the outset. And then when I kind of called him on those expectations, proceeded to sort of like cut me off and disinvite me from a bunch of things that were supposed to be going on that weekend at the conference. And this was both the best thing that ever happened to me and like a really, really traumatizing thing because what it forced me to do was to like figure out my own way of being at this place. Um, I was still there for like another four days when this happened. So it was like, okay, I'm just going to have to get to know some people and make some friends with some strangers, Um, which is what I did. And it was totally, yeah. Well, again, the crashing of the wedding too. (laughs) But like, I still, I still have friends that I made at that conference. I still have really, really close colleagues that I made at that conference because I kind of just like put myself out there and made myself available to be like, I don't know anybody here, so I'm going to go to everything. I'm going to go to every panel. I'm going to go to every wine and cheese mixer. I'm going to like just bomb my way into conversations and see if I can get people to talk to me. And (laughs) I did, and it was great. And I crashed a wedding and I left with somebody else's credit card in my wallet by accident. So it was a fun time that worked out great in the end. (laughs)
0: Yeah
2: and you you mentioned the a word that you don't like in the book which is resilience and but i feel like what you're describing takes some resilience on your part to say i'm not going to let this deter me from mm-hmm. one your career ambitions but also like having trying to have like a useful time at this conference um whereas i feel like it a common version of that story is to say and then you know i never went to another conference again or then yes. i devoted my career to, you know, virtual conferences or so, some other thing. Like, can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, sympathizing with that point of view, but also why you took the risks that you did to stay at that conference and try to engage?
1: Well, because I had the right to be there, right? <laughs> and it because it would have felt absurd to cede my right to be there just because I had this sort of, you know, uh, negative interaction. Um, and that conference, um, you know, was so influential in so many ways, because um, I did start to form really important friendships with colleagues and stuff. But also, it's, it's funny because um, one of my first publications that I ever wrote for a public audience was an article for the Los Angeles Review of Books that was about um, Edith Wharton and Jonathan Franzen. And, and that kind of like, you know, launched my, the side of my career that was invested in public writing, but also a lot of my confidence. And that all came together at that conference um, because I, you know, met a guy who I kind of knew by reputation but not well, and then we like went out to get some sushi, and then he was like, "Well, what are you thinking about these days?" And I was talking about this book I was reading about Jonathan Fredson, and he was like, "You want to write about that, right?" So, so the opportunities that came out of that conference were far bigger than the risks that I took um, at the time in thinking that I was going to stick around and have to put up with, you know, some awkwardness and some humiliation, yeah. which of course faded. Um, And the other things um, became more important over the years.
2: Yeah, I feel like that that in some ways people are aware of these stories now and aware of these issues so that that, you know, a lot of the older generation can't get away with shit like this, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but I think there is Mm -hmm. there is still the danger of, you know, whenever large groups of people or any large group of people get together, there's going to be some assholes there. And that's a risk that you're going to have to run, in order to attend any any sort of large <laughs> get together. Doesn't matter if they're academics or not, uh, you know, to be on your guard a little bit. But like you say, mm-hmm. also find these other protective places where maybe more serendipitous things can happen. Like I say, if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't gone out to sushi with this guy, you know, it's just serendipitously you meet people that can advance your. Inter- your shared interest, and also maybe you had a good time. Um, so <laughs> that's, that was some. some I did, time. I
1: did in the end, and and that's you know one thing that I talk about in the book is like that was um, an experience that on the surface like was terrible, but actually in the end I have really good memories and like and feelings and thoughts and association about what happened um, at that conference because yeah it was just one asshole. And the rest of the conference was was made up of great colleagues who I've continued to get to know over the years and have grown closer to.
2: You have a chapter in here um, about hanging out on the internet. And I love this chapter for a lot of different reasons. But one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, related to this, hanging out on the internet, is um you talk a little bit about where you live in this book and like North Dakota, particularly, I find interesting in that it seems like if I live in North Dakota, maybe I would hang out a lot on the Internet because there's fewer people in real life to hang out with. Um, but w- what was what is that like for people who have never been there? You know, how did you. You didn't grow up there. You talk about moving there and then moving out of it. So what is it like you know, to live in a place maybe where there's just not as many opportunities to hang out in real life?
1: Yeah, um, I started hanging out on the internet in earnest, I guess I could say, around 2014, 2015, which is like late in terms of that trend for most people <laughs> um, who I think had probably started doing it much years earlier. Um, and at the time, I thought that I was, you know, gravitating towards these relationships that I was building on the Internet because I was living in North Dakota. But then I, I think I realized that it was more about the fact that I was also then in my 30s. So it was a combination of, you know, life circumstances and also geographic circumstances um, that made me feel like I had to do that. And, yeah, I was I was living in a new place um, I was living in compared to the place I had come from, a much more sparsely populated place um, there were obviously people around, but there weren't as many. And um, it was harder for me to like form connections with people my own age, you know, given those challenges. Um, and it was also just kind of harder to form connections with people who, you know, were in my field academically, people who cared about the same things that I cared about, who had experienced the same things I had experienced with. And, you know, that's just another aspect, particularly, I think, of academic life is that normally, when you get hired by a college or university to go work there, you're being hired as the only kind of expert who does that thing. The expectation is not that there will be lots of other people there who do that thing, because if there were, they wouldn't need you. <laughs> so, so you get there, and then all of a sudden, you realize that you're having conversations mostly with yourself, right, um, about whatever it is that you're interested in, you know, reading about or studying or talking about. So um, hanging out on the internet started for me around that period of my life, um, partially in response to the geographic circumstances that had changed for me, and also um, as a way of keeping those conversations going. Um, those conversations that I had been privy to when I was younger, but now seemed more difficult uh, to latch onto, um, and as a way of continuing to be able to learn um, and you know pick up more information and more expertise from other people.
2: Yeah, I you know, I feel like i really relate to this because I, I started meeting people on online seriously, probably in the late nineties, and discovered, you know, the David Foster Wallace fandom group and they're very interesting people to me. And I was like, This is so amazing, like all of these incredible people that I've met, which really meant like I got emails from them on a listserv. And this was, you know, before Facebook, before social media, before Twitter it was text-based, right? Like this is very different mm-hmm. presentation of someone's self. And I pride myself in the years since in the number of those people who I've actually got to meet in real life. And I'm lucky that I live in Austin where Wallace's archives are. A lot of people come through here and I always want to meet that person up for a drink. And like, I'm always up for that. And I think your book has made me question like why that is or maybe like why other people are not like me (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, but i i don't know i mean what what would you say you know to, to people who are i don't know interested in meeting more people but haven't really found that they're they're people online yet like do you start with trying to make the jump from Internet world to in in real life people, or is it just a balance of you? You mostly meet your friends in real life.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I that making that jump has worked out great for me at at various points in the future. Matt, I know that you and I met for the first time at a conference some years back in San Francisco. Um, I feel like that jump from you know somebody that you've known on the internet and had conversations with. To meeting and knowing them in person, it it doesn't always work. It's not a guarantee. But I find that a lot of the time it does, um, you know, shockingly enough, like it, it can work out pretty well. Um, so it does require a little bit of that risk taking that we were talking about. There's obviously greater risks um, to trying to make that connection happen in person than there is to letting it exist, you know, somewhere in the sheltered space of a digital platform or something like that. Um, so it does require, I guess, sort of facing up to and acknowledging that risk a little bit. Um, but then you get the rewards of feeling that like, now you're perhaps somewhat, you know, shallow, but, you know, mutual relationship that exists online, now it has another layer to it, you know, it's a, it's a little bit deeper than it was before. Um, so yeah, I, I like that idea. And, you know, speaking of the DFW crowd... If you told me 20 years ago that like some of my best academic friends would be associated with David Foster Wallace, (laughs) I would would have been quite shocked (laughs) to know that that's the case. Um, But yet Uh that's the way it has evolved, which I think is interesting. And, you know, it's a good crew. It is a good crew. It's a fabulous crew. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think that's part of it. And I also think it's because um, so many of the people associated with that crew understand what it's like to have one foot sort of maybe tentatively inside the world of like academic specialization and, you know, studies of that kind and another foot somewhere else, somewhere else that's tied to reality. And I feel like that's the footing I've been forced to maintain (laughs) throughout my whole career. So, you know, I, I understand that stance as well.
2: Yeah. And you know, the, the friendship part of it, I think Mm -hmm. is, is is interesting to me because even now as I get older, I feel like a lot of the friendships that I have are sometimes like transactional where it's like, you come to my thing, I'll go to your thing. We'll go to your, you know, you invite me to your thing. You talk in the book about a friend you had who had a reality TV show and they're like, you come to my thing. And it was very, it sort of felt like transactional where you're like, you are obligated in a way to, (laughs) you're paying someone back or they're paying you back and you feel like they owe me now and you know i i'm trying to i still make new friends like even at my advanced age in life and i try to like legit just do things like no strings attached just Mm -hmm. unconditionally hang out but like i would imagine people in your position who have these academic careers that are complicated with a lot of different obligations, you have to be transactional in some way. So how do you balance that between like doing things purely out of friendship or doing things because like, actually, I'm going to ask you for a favor later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, That's a great point. And, you know, I I think that um, most relationships carry some sort of expectation of that transaction as you're calling it, or that, that sense of reciprocity, right. That you're going to, do something for someone and then they're going to do something for you back somewhere later down the line. It doesn't have to be immediately. And I think we've also probably all known what it's like to be in a friendship where that quality is lacking, um, where the reciprocity does not work out in that way and how eventually that can be sort of like taxing to you, you know, and and can be a little frustrating. So, um, yeah, I think that transaction, the reciprocity, is is a key piece of the whole thing. But it's also not something that has to like, take place in the immediate instance, right? It's it's not like this one-to-one ratio that has to be like satisfied um, right away or else, you know, the friendship itself will fade or something like that. Um, it's something that can be longer than that um, or can be looser and more casual um, and like trusting in somebody else to know that that reciprocity is gonna come back around is a big part of what friendship is. Um, now contrast that of course, to the world of academia where like, because because sometimes the stakes are perceived to be very high and the challenges are perceived to be very fierce and the competition is perceived to be um very very fierce as well i think sometimes those situations of reciprocity end up becoming almost in a crude way the basis of many relationships um and there's this like impatience to make sure that the debt gets paid or that the thing comes back around. Or there's that feeling that you get when you talk to somebody at a conference when they're trying to size you up and figure out what you can possibly do for them in the world. And if the answer is nothing, then they will go on their merry way and find somebody better than you to talk to. Um, I had that experience just last weekend. So it's important just oh, to fun. note that that never really goes away. <laughs>
2: <Wow>. <laughs> I
1: was uh, I was speaking at, um, at a humanities conference last weekend in Pittsburgh, which was a wonderful time. A former uh, mentor of mine brought me. But um, I met someone not not related to what I was talking about at the conference, um, just casually somebody I didn't know before and immediately got that from him. You know, that sense of like, oh yeah, you're not that useful to me. I'm, I'm going to be out of here. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. This all kind of reminds me of your chapter on hanging about hanging out on TV, uh, which is a great chapter where you talk about having this kind of famous friend who had their own reality show and you were then brought into the scenes to hang out in this kind of performative way, right? So you are friends. You you do hang out, but then your relationship became more and more about just hanging out only on the TV set, and how that taxed your real relationship with that person. Um, you never mentioned the actual name of that show. Are you at liberty to say, or do you want to keep that under your under your hat?
1: Oh no, I, I it's fine. I can totally say. Um, my friend's name was Mollye, and the name of the show is Girl Meets Farm.
0: Girl meets It's smile. very okay. easy
2: to Google from all the clues that you gave. in there. yes, and, and i <laughs> not,
1: I know exactly. Not, not, I have a going so to North Dakota much time in North Dakota as I wanted this week. <laughs> a yeah. Food Network show. Yeah. I know she she is like the queen of North Dakota too, so okay, it's kind yeah. of obvious. Um, cool, cool. And and I do thank her in the acknowledgments too. Um, yeah. So. You know, I I figured most people would figure that one out, Mm -hmm. Um, but also like it it didn't matter to me too much if they knew the specifics or not, because um, what I was talking about more was like the strange experience of what occurred as opposed to anything that had particularly to do with her. Um, And I still don't think she did anything wrong. You know, like it was like we ended up in this situation accidentally. She ended up there accidentally based on her talents and her skills and her, you know, um, camera loving personality. Mm -hmm. And... Nothing that she did was like um, on purpose because she was trying to, you know, undermine our relationship or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was more about the strangeness of the situation yeah. that just over time started to make that happen. Yeah. Um, like you say so, that you know, reality
0: I'm... TV is an unholy synthesis of opposites. <laughs> on page 97, like that's a that's a great capture of that experience. Well,
1: yeah, it is because it's all about performing intimacy it's about really performing hanging out Mm -hmm. um and then the irony of that is that you know it's also used um as a kind of like kind of antidote to solitude you know a lot of us use it as like something to have in our lives so that we feel like we're able to eavesdrop on somebody else's social life or social experience Um, in order to make our loneliness perhaps feel a little bit more bearable. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, it was ironic that in the course of being part of this show, I started to feel (laughs) like, you know, I was increasingly drifting into my own loneliness where my friendship with her was concerned.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally.
2: Well, and you're basically a guest at her dinner parties in these episodes and like, you know, reciprocity, was she ever a guest at your dinner parties? Like, did you prefer being the host or do you see yourself as like, you're fine to just be a guest at her table?
1: That's a, that's an amazing question. Um, and, (laughs) and the answer is, is yes. Like there were moments, um, where she was a guest in my house too. And, and I would think back on those moments and think about how, like, you know, because she was already like kind of famous when I first met her. Hmm. Um, I would think about like how stressed out I would be when I knew that like she was coming over because like mm-hmm. she might end up taking photos of stuff that were going to like show up on the blog. You know, it's like everything had this additional component of like another audience is going to see this, mm-hmm. not just you and not just me, but like another set of people, including maybe 20,000 strangers on the Internet. So it, it always made things um, a little strange. But, you know, yet we were just kind of doing normal things. I mean, getting to know each other and hanging out.
2: Yeah, that that stress, you know, it's a big um, point of contention in my home life where I would love to have people over, like, every day and, like, have parties, like, literally just around the clock, like, 24-7. And my wife is like, let's never have people over, like, ever Mm. anymore. and I mean, I'm I'm putting this extremes at both ends, but like there's this fear. You talked about the fear of rejection of like social situations, but I think with dinner parties, there's also this fear of like people are going to judge my house or my food, or yeah. people are going to judge like me, and like this fear of being judged, I think is overblown in context where you're overthinking it. When when I'm a guest in someone else's house, I'm always just thinking like how cool it is I get to see their house. Like I don't ever think like oh they're terrible cooks or their food was terrible or their their grout in their tile was dirt you know what i mean i'm not judging <laughs> that stuff but that's the stuff we get stressed out about before yeah, we have people over yeah. and it's sort of like the willingness to forgive other people what you won't forgive yourself mm-hmm. so yes I, yes I, I really connected with that part of it because a lot of my fantasies are like what do i want in life is like to throw a huge party Mm -hmm. And in in order to do that, um, I don't think it takes much other than just, like, having a lot of friends that you could invite, Mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, I'm going to totally drop this line of questioning and just say um, I I have one other, like, kind of big topic that I want to, like, switch to before we run out of time. And that is um, I want to talk to you about your definition of the sublime. And I really loved, I loved your description of it and how it could, first of all, tell us how the sublime connects to hanging out.
1: Sure. Um, so I, I talk about the sublime in the chapter that's about hanging out on the internet. And one of the reasons why I do that, why I put those two concepts together is to get at this argument that, um, I believe that the experience of the sublime is something that does not and cannot exist on the internet. And that is actually part of what constrains um, interactions on the internet is that um, everything there is made by humans. Um, So it's impossible to get outside of that. And so, you know, I'm I'm taking the idea from Kant. um, And of course Kant wasn't the only one who theorized the sublime. He's just probably, you know, one of our forerunners in thinking about how it's been at least aesthetically um, defined. And um, I talk about the sublime as being an experience of beauty that supersedes an understanding of what human ability can do or what human ability can achieve. Um, So this kind of experience of something beautiful that a human themselves could not go and make, they could make a replication of it, like taking a picture of a sunset, but they can't actually make the sunset itself. Mm -hmm. And that of course is the difference between hanging out on the internet where replications of sunsets abound and hanging out in person where the actual sunset is there. And you can experience it maybe with other people too. So actually along those lines, I think of um, last fall, um, I was on a bike ride with my partner and uh, Burlington has this wonderful sort of like public bike trail that runs along Lake Champlain and is very nicely built up bikeway there. And it was in the evening and um, we got to this, you know, kind of spot where there was this like overlook over the lake. And there really wasn't like an area on the trail to like get off the trail. It was kind of skinny. There was no shoulder there or anything, but the most like fabulous sunset was happening and there must have been like 30 people who just like dropped their bikes in the middle of the trail and we're all staring at <laughs> this sunset like to yeah. like together yeah and so we did the same it was like there was a roadblock you couldn't really get past it but the sunset was incredible so like you know we were there with all these strangers and we were kind of like chit-chatting about it and like having this experience of sharing this thing that was at most maybe going to last about 10 minutes right And so this very sort of ephemeral, fleeting experience in the company of strangers that was itself a little bit social, too. So um, part of what I'm interested in thinking about with regards to the sublime is the way that a life lived increasingly on the Internet actually constrains our ability to experience that kind of thing. Um, That thing that just goes beyond any sense of what humans themselves can accomplish and for that reason also scares us a little bit. Uh, Because it brings us face to face with the limits of our humanity and also with the edges or the beginnings of something that is bigger than our humanity.
2: I absolutely love that. And to me, that is, you know, one of the core lessons of this book. Um, And one of the things that I will probably keep coming back to to convince other people why they need to get out of their house, (laughs) and go (laughs) go outside. Um, But in, in your final piece of advice, you already mentioned the final chapter where you talk about some, uh, some how to stuff. The, the last kind of command or call to action is take heart. And I was wondering if you could just tell us what that means. What does it mean to you to take heart?
1: Um, I style the conclusion to the book as a series of, Um, commands or cues, I call them. And um, take heart is the final one. And it has to do with basically remembering that it's not always going to be great and not all of our best laid plans are going to work out perfectly. And that's okay. Um, That's not even what hanging out has to be about. And developing a little bit more stamina for the discomfort that sometimes comes with hanging out or the awkwardness or sometimes even just the boredom that can come from hanging out. Um, something that of course is, is very close to the heart of David Foster Wallace, right? Um, but thinking about, thinking about how those things also spring from hanging out and that's fine, um, is part of what taking heart is all about. Um, just remembering that it doesn't always have to be perfect. Nobody ever said it had to be perfect. And just because it's not perfect right now, doesn't mean it won't be next time around.
0: Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of like vulnerability in this book, Sheila, you put a lot of your own like personal experiences and some of them are like really... Dark, like we've talked about with the conference chapter in particular. Um, and you come from an academic background, but I get the sense you had a lot of fun writing this book. Like it's very <laughs> personal, maybe like autocritical if people are still using that word. I don't know. Um but like you know, in, in academic writing, dispassionate objectivity is like the dominant mode. And there's certainly mm-hmm. a lot of like academic stuff in this book. You talk about literature, you talk about critical theory. Um, but it's also really personal. And the way that you weave those together was really beautiful. It made for like just such a pleasant reading experience. Um, so was this book like a lot of fun for you to write compared to, you know, stuff you do more academically? Was Definitely. my impression of that um, true? <laughs> yeah,
1: cool. yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Even when I was, you know, writing about what you might think of as like, sort of more melancholy moments or, mm. you know, occasionally negative experiences that don't mm. always work out perfectly in the book. Um, but it, it was fun in part because I got to sort of revisit those experiences with this, you know, um, angled approach that had to do with thinking about hanging out and, and mm. what I was trying to theorize and get out there. Um, but also because, you um, You know, it allowed me some distance from those experiences, too, especially in the way that I was trying to put them in context with, you know, literary examples, with philosophical ideas, um, things like that. So, yeah, yeah, I I had a great time writing it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
0: that's great. Cool. I read a lot of this book coming back from a trip to Seattle with my friends, some like old friends of mine, like, you know, like since grade two, second grade. uh, We went to see a a band called Botch that broke up. Oh, my God, Botch.
1: Oh, my you know, God. Yeah, I
0: figured you might yes. know them being from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Oh, so they I broke remember up.
1: seeing them in like 1990-something. Yes. Um, okay. At, at Bumbershoot. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. Rad. <laughs> I saw them in Pomona at the Glass House in like 2002, mm-hmm. I think it was, opening for Dillinger Skate Plan. And it was like yeah. the best show I've ever been to. It, Dillinger <laughs> had a fire breather on stage that was breathing fire over our heads. Like Amazing. It was nuts. Anyway, so my friends and I went to see Botch like this was a month ago. In Seattle because mm. they announced like some reunion shows and so I'm reading this book and I read it you know on the ferry on the way there from Vancouver Island on the way back and it just contextualized the weekend so in such a lovely way for me where it was like I'm thinking a lot <laughs> about hanging out right now because Sheila and I'm getting to hang out with like three of my favorite oldest friends doing one of my favorite oldest things and um this book has just been very like has, has had so much personal application in my mm life like since i read it a few weeks ago and i want to thank you for that it's been great
1: yeah Um, thank you for saying so it sounds gorgeous (laughs) cool
0: i also just had a friend here for two weeks from denmark he just left like right before we started recording so i was also thinking a lot about hanging out with house guests and how like it would be a fun chapter to write about what it's like to hang out with people who are around you 24 seven in your space for two weeks you know
1: it's something that i thought a lot about when i lived in north dakota because there it was like the only way for me to like see friends who didn't live in the state. Like they had to come stay with me for several days. It was a really hard place Mm -hmm. to get to. So -hmm. if people were going to bother to come all the way to North Dakota to see you, Mm -hmm. they were going to like stay for a while and hang out. But North Dakota is actually a very boring place to live. So then when people (laughs) get there, like you're like, I don't really have anything to show you because it's North Dakota. So we just have to chill together and like, uh, like watch movies or something. And that was fun. (laughs)
0: Cool. Are you finding Vermont to be more, um, there's more to do and it's a more interesting yes. place to be. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. Yes.
1: Well, I don't want to, I don't want to say more as opposed to less interesting. I mean, part of what I love about North Dakota is it's boring character, which makes right, a certain yeah. kind of winsome individual. Um, yeah. But, you have a great yeah, Vermont... about
0: the Midwesterner <laughs> and like how lovely those people are in the Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, wonderful people in the Midwest. And I know that's a cliche, but turns out it's a cliche that's actually true a lot of the yeah. time too, because I I think they work on it um, quite consciously. Um, as opposed to folks in New England who uh, can be a little bit more standoffish because, well, there's a lot of great things to see and do in New England, and that yeah. keeps people from having to like develop that side of their personality, I think. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> I was wondering if you could actually give me some advice on something.
1: Yeah, um, I can try. <laughs> related
2: to hanging out. It's related to hanging out. Oh, I like where um, this is going. So on. in in my day job, I work for a big financial company. Um, thousands of people in Austin but all over the country and so my team is like 25 30 people um, half of whom are in Austin but maybe only three or four of them regularly go into the office the other half like I say live all over some in California and Seattle the East Coast Chicago some of whom I've never met in person And twice a year, we have budget to bring everyone together, usually to Austin, because that's where most of us are. And I always volunteer to plan these things because I like hanging out. No one else wants to do it. (laughs) And (laughs) if you, to me, if you like hanging out, like you should then volunteer to just organize it because then you get control of like the schedule and social time and like how much of that to build in. But there's always some people who not just don't want to be there but like are like radically opposed to the idea of any socialization really on work time Mm -hmm. like you know what I'm saying like you you talk about this in the book about there's a strict divide between leisure time and work time but really in my experience not not. and it's (laughs) it's really to me better to have like social time at work because you're not working in the the way that you're doing like I'm at a bar rather than at my desk and to me that's mm-hmm. like we're getting paid it's not volunteer where you don't have to be like good friends but i still think like everyone wants a friend at work like how isolated oh, yeah. is that sure. if no one has any friends at work so like how do i i don't know facilitate this for people who are i would say reticent to hang out at work
1: um I like having some kind of like you know low stakes thing to do um, as part of those. You know, some people are not that great at like standing around and making small talk or conversation. I love doing that, but plenty of people in the world do not. And I find that having like some sort of low stakes you know game project, whatever it is, to get involved um, can sometimes take the edge off of that a little bit for some people. Um, and yeah, if if some people don't want to get involved, then they don't have to or whatever. But like. I'm thinking about the great um, socializing power that is the game of Bocce. Um, I don't know (laughs) if you're a Bocce player, Matt, but yes, I I love Bocce. Like I started introducing Bocce at some family reunions that I used to go to several years back. And it became like this whole thing because like everybody at every age could effectively play it, um, which is, you know, not true of all those kinds of games and stuff. So, you know, everything from children up to like, you know, like much older members of our family could play it. And then, Um, my dad interestingly took this idea and ran with it. Um, he retired 2 years ago, but right before he retired, um, he like tried to start, you know, like bocce occasions for his office <laughs> and right. like similarly got people to kind of like buy into like hanging out in the park and playing bocce because the beauty of it is is it it is a hanging out game mm-hmm. and if you don't want to play it, you can just sort of like chill and watch everyone and talk to them and it's yeah. like not that high stakes, so it's mm-hmm. not like taking away from the drama of what's going on in the competition
0: this is that's that's actually my friends and I in our 20s used to play extreme bocce on playgrounds yes (laughs) so using like slides and like just launching stuff is awesome maybe a bit destructive but it's great
1: yeah all-terrain bocce yeah yeah yeah.
0: (laughs) extreme
2: I mean that's that's actually super helpful for me and I um I appreciate that advice because I do when you were saying that I do have memories of things that we have done low stakes together that were like kind of fun and fit everyone's speed per se. Mm-hmm. And then things that were a little more like cringeworthy and awkward. Um, <laughs> and,
1: yeah, they exist. I know. You know we've all been part of them. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so, I mean, and I, I, like I say, I, I volunteer to do these things and plan other conferences um, because I want to avoid the cringeworthy stuff yes. and I want to yeah. maximize the, the fun stuff, like no 8 a.m. panels and, like, <laughs> you know, open bar, right? Like, I'm going to try mm-hmm. to, like, yeah. get those things funded. So, okay. Bocce. There is a Bocce court in my neighborhood. My friend Jeff has Bocce in his backyard, which is amazing. Amazing. Um, so, uh, this is... I'm going to double down on this now. I'll send you pictures. When <laughs> Do you all know the all... game Mulky?
1: Mulky, no. Mul- <laughs>
0: Mulky. M-O-L-K-K-Y. I think it's Swedish or Norwegian or something. It's, like... um it's a, lo- a long game as well where you have like a wooden baton and then there's 12 pins and they're each oh, yes. numbered one through 12.
1: I do know it
0: yeah. Yeah it's great so you're just trying to smash um, it's kind of like bowling meets bocce a little bit.
1: Yeah people and would play it in North Dakota but they called it KUB. K-U-B. Oh
0: yeah that that, that mm-hmm. is a great game as well. They're, they're yeah. a little bit different but like very similar kind of vibe yeah. Okay. KUB's, fun. Yeah. Kub's a lot of fun. Yeah right mm-hmm. on. I'm
2: more of just like Stay inside and read most of the day, rather than go play games. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right, Matt.
0: But then you get at a conference and you're like the life of the party, and, and everyone's I, I'm going to incorporate bocce you, so. into it and
2: somehow. So um, <laughs> bocce is where it's at, man. I'm, I'm down with that. Um, yeah. I want to, uh, I want to that was in my Dave. Do you have any final thoughts? Sheila, do you have any final thoughts? Mm-hmm. I want to leave it at that. We're about at one hour. So, uh, I have a few more
0: questions. Uh, I also wonder, Sheila, do you want to, is there a section of the book you'd like to read on air to give our listeners a bit of a a flavor for what this book is about? Yeah,
1: Yeah, hold on, let me grab my copy. Okay, so I have the Australian version of the book, which I just got in the mail. Does it have different Um, pop
0: culture references in it? (laughs)
1: It's all the same. It's just, you know, the spellings are different. We have OUs here instead of O's. Matt and the
0: other guys make fun of me all the time because we have the British spellings for color and honor and all that stuff. (laughs) Mike Miley savages me all the time on this. The (laughs) OU.
1: Okay, um, I'm going to read from the beginning of the conclusion to the book, if that's okay. Cool. So this is from the chapter that's called How to Hang Out, which finishes out the book. A few months ago, I was in a bar in Milwaukee with a friend, and we had a fight. Not a big fight, mind you, but a disagreement, one that felt important enough to set hackles quivering on both sides. I've known this friend for a long time, since college. Indeed, if that weren't the case, the fight probably wouldn't have happened in the first place, since reasoned disagreement rests on the kind of trust that only comes with familiarity. At any rate, we were in this bar, drinking what one drinks in Milwaukee, by which I mean brandy old fashions, It was a low-lit, divey sort of place located near the hotel where I was staying. I was in town to attend a series of organizational meetings, and my friend Ronnie had come up on the train from Chicago to spend the evening with me. We had had dinner together and then retreated to the bar in question, where red velvet curtains divided shadowy booths, and the music was low enough to allow for conversation. And then we had this fight. The details of it don't matter anymore. What matters is that my friend and I stayed in that bar for three hours, talking and digesting our disagreement, that had sprung up between us until it ceased to be a disagreement at all. In talking it out, we realized that we were actually on the same side. We wanted a lot of the same things. We just had different ideas about how to achieve them. When it was over, we found ourselves somewhere new, having emerged from the clouds that had gathered over our debates but were always destined to dispel if given enough time. We left the bar as we had entered it hours before, as old friends, except by then it felt like the fiber of our relationship had grown tougher somehow, like it had been productively tested. That toughening, I believe, comes as the unique result of care. My friend and I care about each other and enough not to give up and not to stay mad. Nobody stormed out or left the table, though the compulsion to do so may well have presented itself at some point, and actually my friend even joked about doing it. Instead, <laughs> we both stuck it out, ascending to what felt like the precipice of personal offense and anger, and then together, descending a trail we had found that led down the other side.
2: Love it. How's that? I had actually underlined the next paragraph where you say, (laughs) I got to thinking about how friendship and hanging out alike require stamina. And I absolutely Mm. love that comparison and that metaphor. I think it's brilliant. And that section to me was basically an ad for this bar i was like i want to go <laughs> totally fashion yeah low lit divy it's, red it's velvet a great curtains bar. i was like fucking sold man
1: it's wonderful and i actually i had to recently look it up to like make sure that it was still there and it is so you oh, know yeah. if you're ever in milwaukee let me know yeah what's
0: it called please oh
2: please, it's uh, uh
1: put... oh it's called stella's stella's cocktail yes, lounge my yep. okay
0: sweet
2: I'll go to Milwaukee I think just to have like a brandy old fashioned at a place like this. <laughs> um, but but that's great because I think a lot of people don't have that experience with a friend where they're willing to have that kind of disagreement and stay with it, hold on to it enough to actually get to the point of understanding. It's mm-hmm. often you know friendships over text that's really hard. In tweet you can't express these kind of complex feelings. You mentioned you were there for hours, like in this mm-hmm. this whole time, you're you're gonna have to address it. So why not work it out or you know, sit and listen to the other person. That's really hard to do, I think, for a lot of people who watch a movie on the couch and are flicking through their phone to really listen to one thing and to right. I don't know, try to understand. So that that idea of like stamina, I realized like, yeah, I, I struggle with that myself.
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. I respect this friend because, you know, I we've known each other for a really long time and and both being slightly antagonistic people like we have a fight every time we see each other, you know, sometimes a bigger fight, sometimes a, a more minor one. Um, but I'm, you know, it it's none of these fights have ever been big enough to cause us to give up. Right. We, we always come back and we always do it again. And. And I think that's um, a really important skill to cultivate, but it's hard to cultivate um, in friendships because, yeah, it is easier just to sort of like walk away or turn the page or just think like, okay, I don't want to have this conversation right now. Um, And in that case, you know, I I appreciated the fact that he was willing to stick it out and then we worked through it together. So
2: well, and there's this Midwestern like niceness, right, which can mask a lot of actual feelings where (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, you know i'm having a discussion with a friend about like the difference between being nice and being kind and i feel like i'm suspicious of people who are always too nice Mm -hmm. and that they're not they're not being authentic with you in some way if they're always just being nice whereas Uh, like kindness can be a mistake where you're forgiven kindness can be you know, something's not expressed in words, but that niceness, um, maybe it's etiquette. You know, people lack some, they, they think like, oh, this is just how etiquette should be. Whereas, you know, what you're describing in this situation is a lot of relying on y- your true feelings, which is scary for people,
0: I think. Mm. Yeah. And this reminds me of the Banshees of Inna Sharon. Have you guys seen that? Oh.
1: Yeah, you know, that movie just no. destroyed me.
0: <laughs> just the rant where he and, just talks about being nice to the and to whoever his like, like branded destroyed.
1: that movie a comedy was really trying to like pull an over on all of us, right?
0: Yeah, yeah De- definitely it's, a it's dark like, comedy. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, it's it's yeah, emphasis on the dark. It is so bleak, upsetting, bleak but,
0: comedy. But yeah. I loved
1: it, and I also kind of saw it as sort of like a metaphor for like interacting on the internet. You know, like totally, um, yeah. How great. like you know. On the internet you can kind of just like, yep, you're blocked, but in real life you have to keep seeing that person and that means you're going to have to keep answering the question of like, well, what did I do? Why aren't we friends anymore, right? Like
0: uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way to well, think about that.
2: The, in, the in, other scene it's... in the book that was like super sad and fucked up to me was the scene where you get kind of stuck with the check from the university president at a dinner. Yeah, I was, I was just was like, thinking about that. I, yeah, I was like, I how many was... of us have been in this nightmare scenario <laughs> where you're at some really fancy restaurant and you're sweating what you order and then you see everyone else getting up to leave and you're like, Oh, Jesus Christ. But if you're in the situation where it's like the president of the university, I mean, I'm probably for people who haven't read the book, I'm probably not summarizing this. Well, do you Mm -hmm. want to summarize it for, for me, Sheila? Sure. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, this,
1: this was, um, an experience that happened to me um, at what really should have been like a kind of like dream dinner party um, for both myself and my partner who was there too, my partner Dave. We were having um, dinner with the science fiction author, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, who I am absolutely obsessed with. I love Someone all of his Someone just books. bought
0: me his book for my birthday recently. One of oh, them. good. Yeah. Well, so now I'm like, you're gonna I was have extra a great time. excited to see that. I was like, okay. Yeah.
1: I actually just gave my dad a copy of one of his books for his birthday. So Very yeah. Nice. <laughs> So I was having dinner with Kim Stanley Robinson and my partner, and then also the physicist Brian Green, um, author of The Elegant Universe, who's also somebody whose work I've really looked up to for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then this was part of a kind of like invitational conference my campus was hosting, so there were other people there too. And one of the other people who were there um, was the chancellor of our university system. This was when I lived in North Dakota. And the chancellor sort of knew Brian Green. Um, They had been Rhodes Scholars together like um, many decades before. So he was ostensibly there to like, you know, reconnect with his old friend, but he was also going to be introducing his talk that evening. So we were at this very fancy steakhouse um, in downtown Grand Forks. And this was back when my partner and I were just um, always very, very poor and uh, living credit card to credit card. And and we did not um, get our meals comped when we went to dinners like this. Uh, The visiting guests would, but we would not. So we would have to always sort of do the mental calculus of like, well, we got invited. I want to go. It's Kim Stanley Robinson, but it's going to be a lot of money, which is exactly what we had to do for that experience. Um, and we decided we were going because, you know, when are we going to get the other chance to do this again? And we went and we were having this uh, lovely meal. I was mostly talking to Robinson and, and so was my partner. And then across from us was Brian Green and then the chancellor of the university system, who was um, making a bit of a, of a jerk of himself and butting into conversation in awkward ways. Um, but the real kicker came at the end of the meal when the chancellor and Brian Green had to leave to get to campus so that um, Brian Green could give his talk that he was giving in the evening. And uh, the chancellor got up to go Um, having had filet mignon for dinner and several glasses of red wine, and did not pay his bill. So he left the restaurant and um, didn't realize that he was expected to pay for himself. And the waiters came over to our table who'd been serving us all evening, who were also people we knew, because this was a small college town and most waiters in town you knew if you were a professor, and said, you know, um, that man over there left without paying his tab. Um, we're just wondering if you, you know, hint, hint, can you do something about this? Right, right. Exactly. So my partner and I ended up, you know, ponying up to, um, pay his tab for him in that instance too. And, um, never got the opportunity to tell him that we had done this because (laughs) he was not somebody that we interacted with very often. You know, he was, he was much higher up in the system than we were, um, which I thought was really unfortunate, um especially given the cuts to the university system that this chancellor oversaw over the years while he was oh, in power. Yeah. so <laughs>
0: impacted you personally, yeah. Right, it's exactly. A little, yeah. Uh, cool. Nightmare
2: yeah. scenario. And like what, what, um, you know, almost like a play where you have these characters <laughs> <laughs> of like the, the higher ups and then the waiters in the corners. And like like you say, everyone sort of knows each other and like the power dynamics at play, like just so fucked up. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that someday karma comes back uh, (laughs) i believe that it will
1: (laughs) maybe it already has who knows
2: maybe maybe
1: yeah (laughs) um a, a reviewer of the book um complained about that scene actually in the book saying that um yeah he used the word petty to describe it he said that i was being petty and complaining about it and i was like wow somebody's never lived with credit card debt if they think that's petty right i think you do a great (laughs) job of
0: like this was our economic situation at the time like yeah (laughs) i that's that's garbage
2: shit my my (laughs) version of that was like in a steakhouse in manhattan where like nothing is under a hundred dollars on the menu and i didn't have a credit card it's like I had a limited amount of money period. And like, I'm hoping that this person who invited me to the steakhouse is going to pick up the check, but I'm afraid to ask. I don't know him that well. <laughs> right. You know, like, right. like if, if your actual friend invited you out, you'd be like, dude, I'm not going there right now. Can we just go to like, you know, mm-hmm. Chipotle or something? <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. But like someone asking you out there, like it's such a power, I don't know, fucked up dynamic that I I think good for those people. If they, if they think it's petty, that shows their ass of who they really. are. (laughs)
1: Um, Agreed. Agreed.
0: My, uh, my final thoughts for you, Sheila, involve music. And when I was reading this section on hanging out at parties, I was wondering, and I wrote this in the margins, if you thought about uh, Andrew WK at all, when you were writing that chapter (laughs) and and bringing in some of his ethos into the, into the mix of what it's like to party. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um what I would you say mean that, I, that? Really I don't think know that about that Andrew WK but <laughs> What is what do you mean? Do you, do you, know, you know who Andrew is WK is? Matt? Yes. Yes. No, I don't.
0: <laughs> you don't know who Andrew WK is? No. Okay, so you have you have a really I'm like I'm so excited for you to discover Andrew WK now. So he has I, this album called I'm just called probably not going wet, to and it's just Fair. all about partying and it is the best. <laughs> it is the best. We'll we'll, we'll text right. about it after. Um <laughs> But yeah, I wondered if that, if that was like a a thought that you had to somehow,
1: you know, not, not explicitly, but perhaps it was there, you know, somewhere in the ether, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I got (laughs) that
0: vibe for sure. sure. And my second musical thing I wanted to geek out with you about was how you talk about uh, Neutral Milk Hotel and that in the jam chapter and that the jam is not commodified. The jam is a form of prophecy, uh, that kind of thing. And then. I think in the 33 and a, and a third book on this, it talks about how Jeff was like just doing a sound check for that song, mm-hmm. but then he just ended up playing the whole thing mm-hmm. um, or for O'Comley, And then someone in the room after, like in the recording room, just yells, holy shit at the end. And yeah. you can hear it I lightly on there because <laughs> yeah. It's um, just incredible. And then yeah, Two had a Boy part two where he gets up, you can hear this chair creaking, the guitar mm-hmm. being set down. And that is a form of uh, of jam and just the hang and hanging out and like the organic stuff that comes out of that. Um, yeah. That album is like top one, top two album of all time for me. So, same. Was ha- in I was fact. very happy to see that make <laughs> its way in a couple times.
1: <laughs> I have. I have such a complicated, well, I won't say complicated. I I have such a strong relationship with that album that I have Mm. actually put limits on how often I'm allowed to listen to it. And (laughs) I am allowed to listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am now allowed to listen to it only once per year all the way through. I can listen to it like, because like once I start listening to it, I will just want to hear the whole thing. So I like, there's one day a year where I allow myself to do that and go all the way through it. And yeah, and then I have to like kind of keep myself away from it. There's actually a couple of albums like that in my life. So maybe that'll be good fodder for my top five.
0: <laughs> mm, nice. Okay. Uh, when you said that you listened to that album 50 times in a row while you were moving and drinking with your friends, I was like 50 times. And I actually got a calculator and I looked up what's the running time of the album. I calculated it It's as short. 30, 33 hours. That would be 50. So, that like, okay. sounds so right. maybe yeah. a bit of hyperbole, maybe not, though.
1: It was about that. I mean, it was, Amazing.
0: That's it awesome. was
1: strange because my, my friends and I, I was moving out of this apartment that I had in Ohio yeah. and like, you know, it was, it was like my college friends, right. I was, I was leaving my college apartment and I was getting ready to move out of college and other, a lot mm. of other people were moving away too. Um, but I, I had this, you know, shitty apartments and a lot of people had already kind of moved out of theirs. So a couple people were staying with me and also helping me move, you know, cause it was just like in between leases and everything like that. And we had this party that was basically three days long. It started like oh, wow. on a Thursday and it wrapped up on a Saturday. And everyone stayed there most of the time. Like I remember, oh, at one yeah. point in time, I, I like took a picture of my bed that had like six people in it. Right, you know, and they were all just like passed out sleeping. So like we had a lot of time to listen <laughs> to that album yeah, okay. over and over. <laughs> that rules.
0: I love that. So good. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your beautiful book. I had such a great time reading this, and I know that it's this so is going to land so well with our, it's really with our so listeners. Good. Um, you know, usually we talk about fiction on the show or often we do not always, but uh, this weaves a lot of great fiction stuff with lovely autocritical nonfiction too. So I know that people are going to really fall in love with this book too. So we thank awesome. you for your time. Thank um, you. Where can people find you online? What's a good place for people to check out more of your stuff. Um, I know you don't have Facebook. You talk about that in the book. Uh, <laughs> I don't think Instagram, but Twitter, you're certainly on Twitter. And
1: yes, yes. I'm, yeah. um- I'm a text-based life form, so I'm I'm still on Twitter for that reason, because it's (laughs) mostly text still. So yeah, you can find me there at CSheSpeak, which is my handle on Twitter.
0: Awesome. You've got two other books, uh, Office and What a Library Means to a Woman, that people can check out as well. Um, Are there any other things that you want to plug or tell us about that you have in the works that are coming out? Or we mentioned the New York Times, a piece on you. Mm -hmm. We'll link that in the show notes. Yep.
1: Yep. Um, no, just um, I'm doing some more interviews in relation to the book and the yeah. uh, the paperback of the book is going to be coming out later this summer.
0: Oh, cool. Right on. Um, and another cool kind of like dovetail was I was listening to your spot on Boredom Matters the podcast, which was like really recent, like end of March. And one of our former guests and friends, Yonina Hoffman, was there talking yeah. about boredom and idleness with you. So that was a really fun synergy. I was very like,
1: oh, wow, this is
0: such a cool uh, worlds collide moment. Um, exactly. Yeah, that was great.
1: I actually recently met her at in person at a conference for the first time and, and had the pleasure of hanging out with her too. Oh so. yeah.
0: She's so fun to hang out with. Totally. Mm-hmm. She was in Victoria um like a year and a half ago or two years ago. And we met up for drinks. It was great.
2: I hung out with her like a year ago in Austin. She yeah. In yeah. Austin, so we yeah. Hang out. That's
0: awesome. Matt, where can people find us online? Con- they wanna...
2: Concavity show uh, at concavity show on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, concavityshow at gmail.com. We love getting email. I think that's it, Dave.
0: Cool. I want to give a shout out and a a little plug to uh, Cambridge University Press. They just came out with a book called David Foster Wallace in Context, which they sent us copies of, which was sweet of them. And, uh, you know, obviously we used to be a show exclusively dedicated to that topic. Um, But the great thing about this book is that it features like 20 people who have been guests on this show before. So, like Claire Hayes Brady is the editor, our friend Matt Luter, Mike Miley, Corey Baldoff, John Baskin, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many people, David Herring, tons of pals in that book. So, uh, anyone who's still interested in that topic, definitely uh, get your hands on that. Um, I've had a chance to read a few of the essays. I'm still
2: interested in that topic, Dave. Well, I am too. Yeah, for sure. I think most of our listeners uh, are as well. We have our conference coming up this summer. Uh, you know, our, our conference will be in um, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, June 22nd through 24th. Our keynote speaker will be Lee Constantinou. Um, and our day two speaker will be Kimberly Harris, who was uh, Wallace's oh, cool, yeah. fiance and daughter of mm-hmm. Charlie Harris, who helped us form the first conference on, in 2014 although the yeah, first Victoria ever Harris. conference mm-hmm. on David Foster Wallace was at university of Liverpool in 2009, but David Herring. So go, Dave. props to today. Claim, um, <laughs> claim to fame. Um, so we, we hope to see some of our people. We say that that conference, yeah. we always meet new people every year at the conference, but for some of us who have been every year, it's like summer camp mm-hmm. for us yeah. is that we get to go back <laughs> and see our friends and hang out. So looking forward to hanging out this summer in, Gettysburg 2024 we'll be back in Austin so if you can't make Gettysburg um, we will announce the dates for the Austin conference soon be back at the Ransom Center um, be ready to hang out and have fun 2022 was a serious highlight that was a serious highlight for me that conference went extremely well uh, we had Jennifer yeah. Egan was our keynote um, it was really great so
0: I missed it Sheila I couldn't go that's why I'm <laughs> hanging my head and some I am too <laughs> We also want to thank uh, four new patrons supporting the show. We got Annabelle Rhodes this month, Shannon Regan, Brooks Williams, and Colin. Just Colin, thank you so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, you guys help it help us keep making this. So uh, much appreciated. Sheila, thanks again for coming on. Uh, look forward to the bonus segment where we talk to Sheila about five favorite books. Uh, we're looking for five books. We don't know or Top five, five of something. Yeah. Some (laughs) kind of five (laughs) bucks. Thanks again, Sheila. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Thanks for having me. Catch me now as I sing into darkness.